in your Bible, the book of Daniel, chapter number 6. Daniel, chapter 6. And if you grew up in church hearing Bible stories, you know that we're talking about Daniel in the lion's den today. Daniel in the lion's den. Daniel, chapter 6. I'm not going to ask you to stand as I normally do to read the Scripture because Today, I want to just go down through the Scripture with you rather than reading it and coming back again and save a little time. And so today, we'll begin and ask God's blessing upon it. Lord, let the meditation of our minds and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you as I seek to preach your Word as it is for men as they are. In Jesus' name, amen. The Babylonian Empire was the world's superpower when they invaded Israel in 606 B.C. before Christ. They sacked and they burned the city of Jerusalem. They tore down the walls that had been built there many years before. And then they began to deport certain of the people. They carried away about 10,000 people in the first wave of deportation deportation, young people that they carried back to Babylon 900 miles away, and the goal was to take them back and make them civil servants, or we would call them bureaucrats today. Among them was one of the members of the royal family. Don't forget about that, about Daniel, a member of the royal family of Israel. And he was taken, a slave, if you will, A young man who was outstanding in every way, every part of his life was outstanding. And the first thing they did is they made a eunuch out of him. A tragic, tragic thing that occurred frequently during those days. Kings would do that to keep men away from the harem if they were working in the palace. And so Daniel became a eunuch. But he rose through the bureaucracy and through all the civil government to become actually the prime minister of the country, the second most powerful man in the country. Sixty-six years passed. He was still serving. He's now in his upper 80s. He's lived a long time. He's probably about 13 or 14 years old when he first was carried to Babylon. Sixty-six years later, at the end of the captivity period, in fact, The year was 539 B.C. The Medes and the Persians invaded Babylon. And you know the story in the preceding chapter of how they came under the walls in the riverbed of the Euphrates River and came up while the whole of the royal family and all the officials of the nation were partying and drunk. And you know how the hand came and wrote on the wall? Daniel went and interpreted that writing. And so, the Medes and the Persians are now in charge. So, we've had a major change in world superpowers. We believe the first world superpower was Assyria, but that was before this. Following them was Egypt, and that was before Daniel. And then there was the Babylonian Empire, the next world superpower, and it was followed by the Medes and the Persians. And so, we come to our text chapter 6 and verse 1. It pleased Darius. Now, who is Darius? Go back up to verse 31, the preceding chapter. 
Darius the Median took the kingdom. He was about 60 years old at the time. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which would be over the whole kingdom. So King Darius reorganized the government into 120 provinces. It was a huge kingdom. Don't think of it as even like the United States. It was bigger than that. It extended all the way from India in the east all the way over to all of Western Europe and uh, part of the Middle, uh, Middle East. And so it's a huge kingdom. He divides it into 120 provinces, or we would probably call them states. In verse 2, and over these, he put three presidents, and then of whom Daniel was first. He was over the three, that the princes might give account unto them, and the king should have no damage. And so he completely reorganized his kingdom or the old Babylonian empire. And Daniel, it says, was preferred in verse 3. This Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was found in him. Why don't you underline that in your Bible? An excellent spirit was found in him. An excellent spirit will take you to the top, won't it? Let's look at Daniel's reputation. Go back to chapter 5. And uh, the mother of, at that time, the queen uh, of Babylon is speaking to her, her son. His name is Belshazzar. And he, she said in verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods was found in him. This is the reputation of Daniel. This is how Daniel is known across that kingdom and among the royal family here. And so he's preferred because he has an excellent spirit or an excellent attitude, you and I would say. And in verses 4 through 9, we find that his enemies are jealous and envious, as you might expect. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no occasion nor fault in Daniel. Isn't that something? Your enemies are scrutinizing you. The detectives are out doing an investigation behind you. And it's not like it is today with government officials. They don't dig up any dirt. There is no dirt to dig up. Here is a man. They cannot find a fault, an occasion of fault in him. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. And these men said, we shall not find any occasion against Daniel. The only thing we could find against him would have to be concerning the law of his God. And so they conspired. They hatched up a plot to use his religious practices and convictions against him. And they had a law changed. And the law was that if anybody prays to anybody other than the king, a big appeal to the king's ego, if anybody prays to any other deity than to the king of Babylon for the next 30 days, they'll be thrown into the lion's den. They'll suffer death. Now, the king went along with that probably because it appealed to his ego. My goodness, these people are going to be treating me like God. This is wonderful. But he didn't realize it was a trap set for Daniel a man that he obviously loved. 
And in verse 10, what's the result of this? When Daniel knew that the writing, the law was signed, he went to his house. His windows were open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled down upon his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God as he had done beforehand. And these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication. And then they went and spoke to the king and said, King, we found somebody violating the law. And you're going to have to enforce the law now. You and I have heard all of our life about the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians, which meant that this is a law that absolutely, no matter what happens, the law cannot be changed. The law of the Medes and Persians was so, so concrete that even the king himself acknowledged, I can't change the law. Oh, how I regret signing that law. I didn't know what these fellows were up to. And so Daniel went home, knowing that they were tracking him, knowing that they knew about the, he knew about the passing of the law, but not one thing changed because this is a man of convictions. Somebody says his convictions were so great, it's no wonder that the lions couldn't eat him. He wasn't anything but backbone. And that probably describes Daniel pretty well, doesn't it? And he faces, verse 10, I'm making my notes, and number one is he faces a hopeless situation. A hopeless situation. Daniel's hopeless situation. Daniel knew the law was passed. And it didn't make one hill of beans difference to him. Now, this is something I read years ago, and I've never forgot. It just emblazoned on my brain. It is so good, you may want to write it down. It's not original with me, so I can brag about it, huh? And what is it? Daniel was described as a man who would rather go to the lion's den than miss his devotions one day. He would rather go to the lion's den than to miss his devotions one time. He had a conviction about his praying and about his devotional life. In verse 10, it says at the end of the verse, as he did aforetime, which means this is a long-established habit or custom. He didn't just start having prayer about the time the law was passed. This is a long-established custom He has built it into his life, and nothing is going to change his meeting with God. Now, let me ask you a question, friend. What do you do when you face a hopeless situation? This is a hopeless situation. The law is not going to be changed. You're going to be thrown in that lion's den. It's going to be a horrible death as they grind you to pieces. This is their barbaric pagan form of capital punishment, and yet he went ahead and prayed anyhow. He not only prayed, he opened the windows. He didn't even try to hide it. He was right in their face with it because he had a conviction about the importance of prayer. What do you do when it's a hopeless situation? Do you have a set of convictions and beliefs so established, habits of the heart that are committed to the glory of God and to obedience to Him, 
habits so deeply ingrained that nothing can shake you, not even a lion's den. This was a no-hope situation, and you and I face no-hope situations unless God chose to intervene, which He did here. So I want you to notice Daniel's hopeless situation, number one, but number two, Daniel's prayer priority. Daniel's prayer priority. You see, Daniel had faced hopeless situations before. He was not a rookie. This is not the first time that Daniel has ever looked at the wall and couldn't do anything about it. Daniel had faced a lot of hopeless situations. One, those soldiers came and grabbed him under the arms and shackled him and put him in a wagon and took him 900 miles away from his home, which was a huge distance in those days, and made him captive. He would never see his mother or father or family or home or friends again. He's an alien. He is exiled to the nation of Babylon where everything is different. Everything is pagan there. And he he had faced, that was a hopeless situation. He faced a hopeless situation when they came in one day and they took away his manhood. They made a eunuch of him. They neutered him. Can you imagine what would go through the mind of a teenage boy undergoing such trauma? And another hopeless situation in his life, when they brought in the king's food and wine, and they said, you have to eat this and drink this. And he said, I won't do that. Well, then you're going to pay for that. That's okay. I'm going to pray to God, though, and my God has a plan for my life. And the Lord turned that around for him, didn't he? Another hopeless situation where prayer worked into his favor. And then he was in the group that had to bow to that image. He's not included in that chapter 3 story there. But the word came down, everybody has to bow to this image that Nebuchadnezzar has built. And he said, no way, I'm not bowing. Well, you know the story of how God delivered him and his friends from that. So hopeless situations are, are, are not strange events in the life of Daniel. He's, he's, he's pretty familiar with hopeless situations. And he, so what do you do in a hopeless situation? Well, if you're Daniel, you pray. You pray. And notice Let me give you some characteristics of his prayer life. Now, a gentleman said to me the other day, I was talking to him about prayer, and he said, Pastor, uh, can you help me to know what to pray for and and give me some ideas on prayer? So, you know, you really only need about one verse here. That's verse 10. I want you to notice the characteristics of his prayer life, and you might want to jot these down in the margin of your Bible there. Number one, prayer needs a place. If you're ever going to be serious about your prayer life, you're going to find a place that you go, a comfortable place. It might be a chair in the den. It might, Jesus said, go into your closet. And he meant by that any kind of a private place where you can go, where you will not be interfered with, where people will not bother you, where the phone won't be ringing and people won't be wanting to chat with you. You're going to get along with God. And that's what he did in verse 10. He went to his house. He opened up the windows toward Jerusalem because Jews prayed with their face toward Jerusalem. 
And so he had his place to pray. And obviously, he had done this aforetime. This was a habit. Do you have a place? If you don't have a place to pray, you're probably not praying in the way that I'm trying to describe for you right now. Number two, he had a time. If you're going to be a serious prayer, you're going to need a time to pray. And his time was three times a day. Three times a day. In other words, he was praying without ceasing. You see, by praying more than once a day or more than a little devotional prayer in the morning, a little Sunday school prayer throughout the day, real praying occupies your mind throughout the day. At least three times a day, he stopped. Now, hold on. Do you know who this is? This is the second most powerful man in the Medo-Persian Empire. You're going to tell me you're too busy to pray. Somebody's going to say, well, I, I just don't have time to pray like you're talking about. Well, the prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire had plenty of time to pray like that. You know what? We all have the same amount of time. Were you the president of the United States? Whether you're you, whether you're whoever, we have the same amount of time, 24 hours every day. It's all in what is important to us, how we use our time. Believe me, there's not a soul here that doesn't have time to pray and to pray seriously. Now, this is a busy man. This is an important man. This is a man bearing huge responsibility, but he, ha- he takes time to pray. And we have time to pray. Don't let Satan tell you that you don't. You know how much we pray? I don't want you to miss this. You know how much we pray? We pray all we want to. We pray all we want. You know how much you're praying? You're praying exactly how much you want to pray. So you look at your watch and say, I'm going to pray more. And you pray and pray. And if you're not careful, you look at your watch and it's been two minutes, huh? I know how that goes. Time passes kind of slowly on your knees, doesn't it? But you know, as you learn to pray, you'll build that up. And you'll have a place and you'll have a time. Saturday afternoon is one of my times. You know what I do? I've never, I don't know that I've ever told you this. But this is a habit of mine. I come in this building on Saturday afternoon. There's nobody here. I sit down right there in my chair. And I just sit here and I think. And I think about the needs of the church and the needs of the people. Who is in the hospital? Who is dying? Who is having major problems in their life that I know about? But then most of all, I pray that God will use me. And I just sit here and I think, Lord, show me anything in my life that would keep me from being used to you tomorrow. And I just, that's my time and my place. In July, Norman and I took a trip. And we were in right outside of Winston-Salem, North Carolina, just north of Winston-Salem on the interstate. And there's a, there a rest stop there, and we stopped there. And I was just walking around observing there for a few minutes, kind of stretching my bones, you know. And a car pulled up over on the other side here, about as far as from oh, the other side of the foyer there from where I was standing. And I watched because two women got out of the car, and they had on a Muslim headdress. And there were two guys in the car with them, a young college-age-looking young people. And uh, the lady had a rolled-up cloth in her hand. 
And she rolled that out like that. She just kind of unrolled it. And she laid it down the grass right there beside the interstate. And she got down on her knees and put her face down on that carpet, and she prayed. And then the other girl prayed. And one of the other guys prayed. The other guy didn't even get out of the car. He just sat in the car listening to whatever he was listening to. Wasn't important to him. I kind of took pleasure in that. Baptists aren't the only people who have cold, backslidden people. Muslims do too. So he sat there and watched the rest of them pray. And I thought, wow, that's impressive. They stopped on a trip wherever they were going because it was time to pray because, you know, Muslims have five times of prayer every day. I was on an airplane, and you're passing through the time zones. I was either going or coming from Europe. I can't remember. It's a long time ago. And it had been dark in the plane because we were flying through the night. And then, as you know, it begins to get light pretty suddenly when you're flying. And the sunshine just flooded the interior of the plane. There was a man three or four or five rows up in front of me. And he got up, and he popped his little prayer rug. He got right down in the middle of the aisle of a 747. And he prayed. Put his face down on the floor, knelt on his knees. Time to pray. And I thought, how many Christians would do that? How many Christians would do that? You could feel the atmosphere in that plane. People were fascinated by that. They didn't know how to respond to that. Prayer needs a place. Prayer needs a time. Number three, prayer needs a posture. You say, a posture? Yeah, I know you can pray anywhere. You can pray standing on your head. You can pray laying down. You can pray wherever you want to pray. But Daniel knelt to pray, and most of the people in the Bible either stood or they knelt. And why? Because it's a show of reverence. It's respect. To kneel is to show humility in the, in the presence of God. I have a lot of people ask me, I've never seen a preacher kneel in his pulpit before. Well, I got that idea from O.R.G. Lee, the great, great preacher. And he told preachers, he said, I wish you would kneel in the pulpit because you're leading your people to understand that we show extreme reverence. We break our customs. We get out of the norm. We kneel down because we're in the presence of God and we show reverence however we can show it. Doesn't mean your prayer will be answered if everything else is not right, but your posture reflects an attitude. If you can, get on your knees or at least take a posture of specialness to the Lord. And then prayer needs an agenda. And I try to write down a little list of things before I pray so I will remember them. I, I, I reflect on it. I had my little list yesterday as I sat here. And I write down a few things, the things that are on my heart. And then I throw the list away when I get through. Verse 10 tells me he had an agenda. 
What did he do? He kneeled down three times a day. He prayed. He gave thanks. First of all, he starts his prayer with thanks. Thanksgiving. Try to spend more time in thanksgiving than you do in anything else. Try to go through a long list of things because it'll change your heart. Don't, don't thank the Lord for everything and all the good things and the blessings. Thank Him for specific things. I thank you, Lord, for my wife who has so taken care of me for all these years and blessed me. Thank you, Lord, for our church. Thank you, Lord, for my health. Thank you, Lord, for my life. You can go down. You can make a list of 25 things if you'll just stop for a moment and think about it. And as you do that, you know what happens? You change. Your attitude begins to change. Prayer needs a place. It needs a time. It needs a posture. It needs an agenda. And when you really begin to pray, you know what's going to happen? Prayer begins to influence other things and other people. Chapter 6 and verse 14, it even influenced a king. The king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself. Why? I was the guy that signed that law. He set his heart on Daniel. He did everything he could to deliver him, and he labored until the going down of the sun. But then there's nothing else he could do. And so in verse 16, the king commanded, and they brought Daniel. And they cast him into the den of lions. Nothing he could do to save him. A hopeless situation. But Daniel's prayer had so influenced the king that the king says, I've got to do everything I can to save this good man. And so the question is, who am I influencing? You know, you can influence people through prayer that you can't touch any other way. I'm trying to do that right now by getting this church to pray, to pray seriously, to, not, to pray more than we've been praying, pray more seriously than we've been praying. Because prayer influences people and things and events. Who are you influencing? I held a funeral Friday for a gracious good lady that came here for 36 years. Her name is Janelle Hyman. She lived in Scranton. She ran a little furniture store down there. They call it the Little Red Barn. A good, competent businesswoman, 90 years old, and she died suddenly. So I held her service here Friday over in the chapel. And before the service, the day before, as I was planning the funeral with her family, her family brought me two little items. Boy, did they touch my heart. I'm still touched. I'm still thinking about it. They brought me 15 years of Bible reading guides where she had read the Bible completely through, checked it off, and made notes. And for 15 years in a row, that good woman had read every chapter in the Bible during the year. Then they brought me something else. It was a list in her writing. 15 names of she, she had them written down. People I have brought to the Florence Baptist Temple who joined our church. Fifteen names. And I read it. And I didn't know that she had influenced some of those people to come here, but she obviously had worked with them and she had influenced them. We can influence people. We do influence people. Who are you influencing for, for Christ, for good?
for righteousness. I challenge you. I, I know you would like to, but we get in this living thing, and we're running here and there. And uh, if, if I wrote a story about the Florence Baptist Temple, the heading of it would be running here and there. And so much of it, so meaningless. Ain't going to matter next week, much less for eternity. People, people of God, listen to me. We're not going to avoid eternity. So let's prepare and let's live like we're going to be there one of these days, perhaps soon. So the king went to the palace, or to the lion's den, or pardon me, to the palace first. He went to the palace and passed the night fasting, verse 18. Wow, what an influence. A pagan king is fasting? <laughs> How in the world can that happen? Pagans don't fast, they feast. The king went to the palace and passed the night fasting, and he said, don't bring in the entertainment tonight. And he couldn't sleep. They hadn't invented melatonin at that point. And so he lays there awake, and early in the morning, he gets up and he goes with haste into the den of lions, and he came to the den. And with a lamentable voice, a voice breaking with emotion, he says, Daniel, oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, is your God who you serve continually able to deliver you from the lions? He didn't know if there would be a response. He didn't know if that would be met with silence. But then Daniel said, Oh, King, live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the lions' mouths, and they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before you, O King, have I done no hurt. And the king was exceeding glad. He shouted and rejoiced and commanded that they bring Daniel up out of the den. And he was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he, write it in your Bible, faith, he had believed in God, and God had heard his prayer, and God had delivered him. And then Darius made a decree and read it with me quickly in chapter 6, verse 25. King Darius wrote to all people, all nations, and all languages that dwell on the earth. See the superpower. Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree. In every dominion of my kingdom, men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He's the living God and steadfast forever, his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed in his dominion shall be even to the end. He delivereth and he rescueth, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the land? So this Daniel prospered. Take your pen, circle a word there, prospered. People that know how to pray are going to prosper, not just with material things, they're going to prosper before God, the kind of prosperity that God can give. Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and lived on into the reign of Cyrus the Persian, the next king on the throne there. Now, quickly, my time is gone, but hear me. 
Prayer matters. Prayer matters. Do I hear more than three amens on that? Does prayer matter? If we expect God to work, if we expect great things, if we have a vision of building an army of people committed to Jesus Christ and serving Him, it begins with prayer. It begins with prayer. Matthew 21 and 13, Jesus is teaching. He's getting ready to clear the temple of people who are using it, religion, for their own profit. And Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. You've made it a place of merchandising. My house shall be a house of prayer for all people, for all nations. The characteristic that people ought to know our church by is it's a house of prayer, a house of prayer. I'm striving to make the Florence Baptist Temple a house of prayer. That when people drive by on the highway out here, they look over here and say, you know what? I've heard that church prays. I've heard those people pray, and God blesses their prayers. Acts 1 and 14, prayer was the priority of the early church. When they met together and began there at Pentecost, it says they were all in one accord. What does that mean? Unity is not just everybody being here and not having a fight. Unity is having everybody has the same purpose. Everybody has the same mission. We're here to get hold of God. And Daniel received an answer to his prayers because he met all the conditions. I only have a minute, but let me, if you want to write these down, I'll give you the conditions of getting your prayer answered because Daniel met them. Number one, you have to be a child of God. You have to be saved. God never promises to hear the prayer of unsaved people. I think sometimes he does, but there's no promise of that. But there's a prayer promise for you and me. Our Father who art in heaven, if you can truly call God Father because you've been born into his kingdom, then you're a saved person, and you must be God's child through the new birth. Prayer is not for unsaved people primarily. It's for Christians. Number two, your life must be free of unconfessed sin. If there's known sin that you're practicing, unconfessed, you haven't confessed it and forsaken it before the Lord, then your prayers will not be answered. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Look in verse 4 there. His enemies, chapter 6, could find no occasion, no fault against Daniel. Look in chapter 6 and verse 22. Even Daniel himself says, I've searched my heart so much that innocency has been found in me. His own testimony was, innocency has been found in me. Number three, if you want your prayer answered, there's got to be faith. Daniel believed God. We read the phrase. Number four, if you want your prayer answered, you have to be in the will of God. The will of God is found in the Word of God. And you've got to be living your life according to the Bible, not according to the way you think that God's will is. Our request must be consistent with His Word. And then fifthly, 
There's a condition. Jesus said, you'll get your prayers answered if you abide in me. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? It means to be living for him, to be carrying out those disciplines and practices of reading the word and prayer and being faithful to church and, and, and associating with God's people in fellowship and serving the Lord. That's abiding in Christ. Now, I want everybody to read this, even if you didn't bring a Bible today. So, I want you to look at a verse of Scripture, and I want you to take this verse and grasp it. Write that reference down. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. That's a person living righteously. No unconfessed sin. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. There is the answer right there to your prayer life. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them to do evil. 1 Peter 3 and 12. Stand to your feet with me if you will, please.